You are now listening to episode 57 of Doc Fermento Discovers the World. This episode features Todd Becker. Title is Adaptive Control. Todd is um, a chemical engineer and philosopher. And on his blog, he focuses on the concept of hormatism or hormesis, as it's known. And also, what I found very intriguing was stoicism. So we're going to tie together some philosophy and some uh, stress, some proper stress for the body. I'll read a little bit of his bio uh, Todd's philosophy of hormatism is the result of years of personal investigation into the role of moderate stress in adaptation, as applied to health, nutrition, rehabilitation, and psychology. He is interested in how we might exploit this understanding to overcome challenges, adapt, and thrive in any of our endeavors. That's some pretty cool stuff. Todd's blog is gettingstronger.org. It's an awesome project. Um, Many, many topics. Um, Rehabilitation, psychology, diet, fitness, stoicism, and more. So check out his blog, gettingstronger.org. And I hope you enjoy this episode. And of course, thanks for listening. Hi, Todd. Hey, Brian. How are you this evening? I'm doing very well. Sorry that I got my time zones mixed up the other way. This is a lot better than I thought it was going to (laughs) be. That's all right. (laughs) That's no problem at all. (laughs) You know, I first discovered you quite a while back when you were on Jimmy Moore's show. Oh, okay. And it was an excellent interview. Um, you you were great on there, and I've actually used a lot of the things you were talking about in from from my communication to others. Um, you know, because I kind of do a you know a low carb paleo primal gaps less than a price approach to you know health wellness and diet. And I thought some of the things you were talking about on there were really intriguing, and I still tell some of the same stories today. Um, especially like about your tanker truck analogy. Okay. I really thought that that was, I like analogies. I'm not a scientist. So analogies are a great way for me to think and to communicate with others, you know? Yeah, that always struck me as very odd that people who are very heavy and have plenty of fuel are unable to get access to that fuel. It just seems so odd to me. You'd think they would be the ones who would have the least problem getting access to their fuel, but it's the other way around, right? Right. So your body, yes. Yeah. So you have a large body, say, like for me, um, a few years ago, you know, I had just just an enormous belly and a big fat neck, yet thin, like my arms and legs, you know? Um, And that fuel that's in you, that is, it's a usable fuel, but you can't access it. 
and it seems that you know, and the more you eat and the more you exercise, you just keep packing on more and more and more. That's right. And and people who are heavy or very obese are often starving. They're they're hungry. They they, they literally cannot get access to glucose or fat. <laughs> it's it's a real paradox. Yeah, isn't that a isn't that wasn't there a I think I read a post once. They called it the Brooklyn paradox or something. It was one of the poorest neighborhoods in the nation, and they were the most obese population. That's right. <laughs> How does this work? What's going on there? Yeah, well, I think it all has to do with allowing fuel to flow in one direction or the other. They, they have no problem storing it and packing it on. They just can't reverse that. And, and I think the key is, as you, you must realize, because if you've read the same uh, authors that I have has to do with hormonal control, right? So that uh, um, you know, insulin and leptin are not the whole story, but they're a big part of it. And when insulin levels are low enough, the the fuel can finally flow back in the other direction. Mm-hmm. Um, but people never let it get low enough. Um, and and one of the things I, I thought too was a point of confusion is, is you'll often hear discussion of insulin levels without paying a lot of attention to how those fluctuate during the day. And so it's not a matter of what your average level is. It's really what your basal level is. It's getting, it's, and that's what led me to um, really think a lot about intermittent fasting is leaving long enough periods of time uh, without eating mm-hmm. so to give yourself a chance to actually access those, those fuels that are stored on your body. Does this speak to the circadian rhythm at all? Is this is this important part of it, or are you speaking about some something else entirely? Something different. You know, I know there are those who are big believers in circadian ry- rhythm, and you read the, like you know Jack Cruz and others who uh, you know that's not only the daily rhythm but the yearly rhythm. I'm not quite as convinced um, about that. Um, there may be some evidence for it, but I actually probably follow more the Art Devaney school of, of thinking there where I like to keep my body confused and expose it to a certain degree of randomness and not let it lock into a pattern. I think our bodies are really good at figuring, figuring us out and trying to defeat our, uh, our intentions. Yeah, you just mentioned two things that it's kind of fragmented my mind and i got to figure out which track to go down. I'll cover the cruise thing real quick. Yeah. I feel that... <clears throat> He was he was one of the first guests I ever had on my show, like episode five. I loved the guy. I loved his approach. I loved his message. I didn't know about his history, and I didn't know about some of the things he was up to. And then he he went off the rails, and he hijacked this hormesis idea. I'm not oh. saying it was your idea, <laughs> per se, but he hijacked it and railroaded it and turned it into something bizarre, in my mm. opinion. Um, far, far beyond the pale of um, any known scientific accuracy, in my opinion. Right, yeah, he, he does tend to let his speculation run away with him. Yeah, so we have this hormesis angle. This is something that you cover on your blog um, extensively. I, this is super huge. I definitely, we're going to be covering this. And the other thing I really want to get into, actually, is stoicism. Okay. I discovered it because of your blog. Ah, and. Right. Because of you, I have sitting in front of me two books. <laughs> uh, a Guide to the Good Life by yeah. William Irvine, mm-hmm. which is fantastic. Thanks for uh, writing the post on that. I'm glad you like that book. And then also An Epidemic of Absence mm-hmm. by uh, 
Moises Velasquez Manoff. Yes. That is a fantastic science book. It's like a science detective novel. It really is. Yeah. So we have a lot to cover, and I want to go in so many different directions. So let's go back to the Devaney thing about um, stress, uh, hormesis. What does mm-hmm. this mean? And um, I had actually been tweeting about you recently. I pulled some quotes out of some of your pieces, and you know, you're talking about um, the fact that actually uh, certain stresses could be highly beneficial for you if done properly. Yeah, well, um, Brian, hormesis probably is the set. If, if you had to pick one theme that I this right at the center of my blog, it's hormesis, and I, I've even coined a uh, a term hormetism, which really describes my philosophy of how you can apply hormesis as a practical tool because hormesis is really just a scientific principle it's a biological principle oh you coined the term hormetism no wonder every time i type it into my (laughs) iphone it says that it it doesn't recognize the word (laughs) well there just wasn't a word for for what i for for what i wanted so every so often you have to just come up with something um and yeah so hormesis is has been well studied by people like uh, calabrese and rattan, and you know they've done all these studies in fruit flies and nematodes and all kinds of uh, uh, different species, looking at how stresses can actually turn on certain protective uh, mechanisms, d- different defense and repair mechanisms at low dose. And, and yet, if you exceed a certain dose, you, you start to get a toxic effect. And uh, it's been a controversial theory, and it's not accepted by conventional toxicologists who, who uh, support this idea of the linear uh, no-threshold theory, that there is no lower limit to, to toxins. But I think there's plenty of evidence showing that, um, that hormesis does exist. Yeah, so in, yeah. I'm going to clarify one thing. In the hormesis, we're not talking about an invisible, mystical stressor like via... Uh, homeopathy, homeopathic medicine. Yeah, that's another confusion. Yeah, right, right. Certainly, you have to have <laughs> the problem with homeopathy is is the concentrations are so low that they're, they're they could be below a single molecule, which just doesn't make uh, physical or biological sense. Uh, you know, but those folks talk about the memory of the molecule. I was going to say it's about the yeah. memory of water or the memory of a molecule. Yeah. So you know, perhaps there's something going on there, but but. Um, I can't explain it. No, I think hormesis is real, um, and there's actually an evolutionary reason for it. So it's not it's not mysterious at all. In fact, if if there weren't such a thing as hormesis, I don't think evolution could have taken place because it's really the basis of defense and repair. I mean, your DNA is damaged by ultraviolet radiation. You you, you um, expose yourself to toxins in your food supply. If you didn't have the ability to detoxify. Um, you'd be much more vulnerable. So that's why we evolved the ability to do at least a certain amount of detoxification. But I think what's really interesting and what, you know, where I go beyond those studies, which are just looking at, you know, dose response is the idea that, that, that um, we're, adapt- we're adaptive organisms, right? And that uh, we can increase our threshold to stress. Probably the, the clearest examples of that would be, uh, um, you know, exercise and building muscles, you know, through weightlifting or um, increasing bone mineral density through weight-bearing exercise. I mean, obviously, the body 
response there. Or when you go out into the sun, you, you, your melanin levels increase. So those mechanisms are clear and they're demonstrable. Um, and if you look also, I think the really uh, interesting thing to me in terms of hormesis are the whole series of detoxifying enzymes that are upregulated when you're exposed to certain hormetic compounds. So things like superoxide dismutase or, you know, the glutathione enzymes um, are turned on when you're exposed to, for example, some of the uh, hormetic compounds in, in the brightly colored foods, you know, peppers, uh, green vegetables, broccoli, that sort of thing. Hmm. Um, you know, compounds like uh, sulforaphane or curcumin um, or resveratrol. Those actually stimulate a hermetic response. So there's, it's been studied, but I think what really hasn't been thought about is how can you actually increase your capacity by deliberately exposing yourself to judiciously increasing levels of stress. Yeah, hence the name of your blog, gettingstronger.org. This right. Isn't, this isn't a weightlifting uh, blog. You know, no, it, it isn't. In fact, I have almost nothing in there about weightlifting. So Maybe we're, we're talking getting stronger. What what are your focuses? Becoming resilient physically, uh, mentally, spiritually. Uh, really, uh, you know, your immune system, your uh, um, your skin, your bones, mm-hmm. tissues, everything, your brain. <laughs> yeah. Did you have a scientific background that led you into this, or was this an independent course for you? Well, I do have a scientific background. So my training is in chemical engineering and specifically biochemical engineering. And, my, you know, I apply that as a, uh, a, a staff scientist at a biotech company. But my day job has very little to do with this interest, which is really a personal interest. Oh, okay. And I had a, another degree uh, sort of in parallel to that in philosophy, philosophy of science. So maybe it's the intersection of those two interests that's, that's led in this direction. And I, I guess I would add to that an interest in health that probably came about in my 30s and 40s, uh, where I started paying a little bit more attention to that. So there's, there's multiple influences. Were you searching for um, just some longevity, or were you trying to recover from some things, weight, or something like that? I think the first thing was weight loss and, and getting more energy. You know, I was getting a bit heavier, uh, and and uh, just uh, trying to eat less didn't really work. And so I, that's where I started reading about it and, and, and came across these alternative uh, theories of obesity, right? That are that have to do more with hormonal control of uh, fat metabolism. Yeah, I know a a very popular um, doctor on the internet, and he had recently put out a tweet that said that, you know, he's tired of people approaching him and asking him about their hormones if they have a weight problem. You know, he says they have an overactive mouth gland. (laughs) And, um, you know, he's being cheeky and funny, but sometimes I think he's serious, and I, I just don't agree with the approach. I don't believe in eat less, exercise more, mm-hmm. for a person, I hate to use the term metabolic syndrome, you know, I don't know what that actually means, um, but someone who's obviously disordered, someone whose body's out of, you know, they're out of touch with, they're out of control a bit. Um, I can speak to it because I've been there 
pretty seriously. So I, there is something to the hormones. I mean, there has to be. Yeah, there is. And, and uh, I think this goes back to where the whole paleo, uh, the basis for the paleo diet comes from. I mean, some people look at that and, and try to um, un- uncover exactly what our uh, forebears were eating, what they were doing. And I, I suppose that's a useful place to look, but I, I think it's really just a clue to look at what uh, a biologically correct way of eating is, you know, how, how did our um, metabolism evolve to handle mm-hmm. food? Yeah, I think it's a fantastic baseline for a person to start, then do some research. Mm-hmm. Find novel foods that we have um, adapted to and introduce them and see how you do with them. I, You know, I get tired of people bashing paleo because it's so limiting or they struggle because they're in CrossFit and they're working out seven days a week and, you know, they have adrenal fatigue and all these issues. And it's like, well, you're pushing your body so hard yet you're not using your mind and researching and trying new foods and expanding, right? Right. Yeah, I don't understand where, why, these, why you would want to be working out uh, you know, seven days a week intensely. But, it's just an addiction but, as, as much yeah. as any other. Um, yeah. I mean, this is one thing I think Devaney is really good about, is that, and he bases it to some extent on evolutionary studies that uh, hunter-gatherers would... Um, they, their lives were very intermittent, right? They would go out on the hunt and it would be very intense and their heart rate would go up and their uh, stress hormones would go up. But they also s- spent a lot of time sitting around doing nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and uh, I think this is another key aspect of, of, of my approach is to, uh, to go all out when you're, when you're exercising, but also the importance of rest and, and recovery. Because you, you're stre- you, you want to stress whatever system it is you're trying to um, develop. You want to stress that response so that you activate a uh, defense or repair system. But then you've got to give it a chance to work. And, and you yeah. need some rest and recovery. I mean, that's really clear in, in working out with weights. If you're not giving yourself, uh, ideally, several days off for, for um, muscles to repair, you're just re-insulting uh, the muscle and not letting it repair itself or, or, or grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm no expert in uh, physiology or exercise or anything like that, but when I see really heavy people jogging, I just, it makes me sad mm-hmm. because they're not properly stressing themselves. They're, they're abusing themselves. Yes. And their recovery is going to need to, re- they're going to have, they've done so much damage. Um, I, how, I don't know how they could even recover. Whereas if they just did a harder, faster, quick uh, blast, it would seem to me that then you're going to get a, a nice response. You know, it's this, I've heard you speak about this before, the opponent process. I know it's, I'm stretching here, but it's, you know, that, that stress and then the response. But it needs to be something that's uh, in, in a balance or something that your body can respond to. Right. You've got to give it a chance to respond. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you were, um, we talked about that opponent process before. I think it was for emotion, though, wasn't it? Yeah. It, I think that's where the theory came from, was uh, there was a psychologist, Richard Solomon, who was doing this work in the 1970s uh, 
And he was his, the first thing he was studying was um, emotions that are that are produced in, in response to um, uh, very exciting events like skydiving. And what he observed was that you know skydivers when they when they start out or, or people who are new to this that sport. I've never done it myself, but I've done other thrilling things. Um, you know, their heart rate goes up. They're terrified. And uh, it's extremely stressful. They do the dive, and then afterward, there's this kind of afterglow where they actually feel a slight euphoria. Maybe it's a satisfaction that they completed it, but there actually is a, um, uh, a pleasurable feeling that lingers on. And when they do it the second time, they're not quite as scared, and the euphoric afterglow increases. And then, you know, the, those who are old hats at it, uh, barely experience any uh, fright when they when they jump, and it's just pure pleasure, and that pleasure extends all day long. And he said, you know, this is interesting. This is really the flip side of addiction, because in addiction, you're exposing yourself to something that is immediately pleasurable, whether it be some substance or sex or you know gambling, whatever it is, gives you this thrill. And it gives you a high, and so it, it tends to draw you back to it. But there's a bit of a letdown after you have that drink or, or drug or whatever it is. Um, and you start to develop a tolerance. And the next time, it's not maybe quite as, as good. Um, and you need, you, you need more of that. Yeah, then you're novelty-seeking. You, yeah. yeah. But, and, but what's even worse is you now start to develop this, um, uh, this feeling... Uh, this withdrawal symptom that's that's actually quite unpleasant, and that's what almost drives you back to it again. So this, this is this is this is dopamine based. It is. It right. is. It's dopamine based. Now Solomon didn't connect it to dopamine. I think that's something that you know others have done, and certainly it's some it's an area I'm interested in. Because I have another art, uh, another um, post on what I call the receptor control theory, which kind of connects with this, um, but. Just to follow through the phenomenological side of the theory, without, before we get into science, what Solomon found is that through these these um, exciting thrills and addictions are the, the flip side of each other. The immediate effect gets dampened down, and the after effect, which is sort of the opponent process, is the opposite, becomes more pronounced and longer. Um, so you know the addict um, not only does the, the pleasurable uh, aspect diminish but the the displeasure becomes longer and more intense and the mm. and the skydivers the reverse now one of the so the way i apply this is is um, you know what we really are after are, are is is to feel good about ourselves most of the time as a general background not in just brief spurts so we'd like to um condition ourselves to feel happy <laughs> right right um, so if you're what I noticed, and I think it probably came first from running, you know, is that running is does take a bit of a of an effort and can sometimes be strenuous, but you feel good afterward. It's that runner's high. Um, the one that the uh, experiment to me that really fit the model the, the best was cold showers, because the first time you take a cold shower, it's for some people it's terrifying. <laughs> you know, some people can't even last a few seconds. It, I couldn't, um, yeah, I, 
I've been there. I've, I've experimented with it, and I stand in front of the shower, and I just, I just say no. I, I can't get right. myself to get in there. Yeah. No. So there's there's various tricks to kind of get past that. But for me, I, I'm the one, I'm the sort to just just do it. Right. There's others who think, okay, ease yourself into it. What you find is you get past that shock, and you're laughing, and you're jumping around in the shower. Um, you actually get this feeling of warmth starting to build and this pleasant sensation and you, and this feeling of freshness and, and aliveness. And it, once you can get used to doing this for several minutes, by the time you're out to three or four minutes, it's really intensely pleasurable. And then when you get out of the shower, this good feeling lasts for me all day. Hmm. And I take, so I take a cold shower every morning. Oh, really? Um, Wow. Yeah. And the other so to go to go with the opponent process again. The, there's always this even now this little hesitation. You know, do you really want to do this? Why don't you just take a warm shower? You know, it's the self talk. It's so much easier. Yeah. Why are you doing this to yourself? Right. Right. But you get in, and um, the that immediate shock or, or unpleasant feeling it probably doesn't last more than ten or fifteen seconds, and then it's kind of neutral and nice, and then it just gets better. So it, to me, it fits that same model as the skydiver. Um, um, but it's a now you could say, okay, isn't that a good addiction, or isn't that an addiction? Right. Mm, I don't know that it's addictive because you still always have this barrier to get over. You got to actually do something, and if it is an addiction, okay, fine. It's it's. I think it's a good one. I don't. I haven't found the downside to it. <laughs> yeah, until you've gone to the point where you're just completely taking ice baths and you injure yourself, right? Then you need to back off a bit. But I, 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 there is a there is you have you know with any of these un- unpleasant things, there's a, they tend to be self limiting. I mean, another example is is intermittent fasting. I think that fits the model too because um, uh, again, you're exposing yourself to what I would consider a stressor, which is you know depriving yourself of a nutrient. Um, it can, there can be moments where it's a little bit unpleasant or you feel hunger, but, um, you get, there is a real pleasure and, and aliveness and alertness that comes from it. And it tends to be self-limiting after a while, you know, you can only do it so long, but your ability to, to fast improves with time, the more you adapt to it. So I think it's a cool theory. It really says a lot about the human condition and our adaptability and I, you know, going beyond where Solomon was, I think it has a biological basis in in receptors, um, whether they be uh, insulin or glucose transport receptors. You know, like the GLUT4 receptors that are involved in in uh, uh, uptake of of glucose, mm-hmm. or whether they be dopamine receptors. You know, which which are involved in in uh, neurotransmitter uptake. And these uh, people tend to focus on, you know, the sugar or the dopamine or um, opioids or whatever. To me, the more interesting thing is is the hardware. It's not it's not the transient signals, but it's what are you actually changing about your body and your organism. This is what is is um, these are the changes that are more long lasting, more permanent, and I think uh, uh, you know much more powerful. So if, you, if you're able to upregulate these receptors that really give you a sense of pleasure, improve the efficiency of nutrient transport, and basically just make your body work better, you're in good health. 
the problem in, is, is in contemporary society, we're focused on the short term. We go for the food that gives us that instant hit. Um, we go for activities that give us the instant pleasure. And so our body responds because it's being overstimulated from what it evolved to be able to handle. Our body responds by shutting down those signals, by uh, down-regulating receptors, and then we're left um, worse off. Yeah, and then we're just convenience junkies. Exactly. Yeah. I've used some of your techniques um, after I heard your show, your interview with Jimmy about um, just some subtle intermittent fasting. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, you've slept the night, so you're at least eight hours fasted, (laughs) plus how many hours before you went to bed. And then I, I cook breakfast for my children every morning. So what I would do is cook the breakfast and not eat with them. Mm, I would okay. sit with them, yeah, and and you know enjoy the meal and but just sit there, maybe have water or something like that. You know, just sure. hydration and don't look too odd sitting there not eating. But at first it, it was very hard for me, and then over time I kind of almost enjoy it. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a self test, and I can do this, and you feel you feel pretty good about yourself, and then it becomes much easier. Um, so then when you're in the presence of a, of a highly delicious, pal- highly palatable food, you, you're more, you can say no more easily. Exactly. This is a way, a really practical way to develop self-control. You know, addicts, real, people who are addicts or, you know, depressed or obese, they really are at a point where they almost have no self-control. They've sort of lost that. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, we have the ability to go in the other direction to really increase our self-control to the point where um, we're more independent of, of urges. Certainly, it doesn't mean you, you're, you become an ascetic and give up pleasure. It just means that it's not the master of you. You can enjoy it, and yeah. it's not the master. And this actually gets into the sort of the connection with Stoicism. Is the Stoics were, were not, as a lot of people assume, these dour you know, sort of uh, <laughs> unhappy people who just you know wanted to forswear everything in life, or felt that um, uh, you know some people do that, that you don't want to become attached, so you should just never have any pleasure or any love. It, but on the contrary, they enjoyed life. They enjoyed the good things in life, but they they found a way not to become so dependent on them that that they were um, you know mindless slaves to their pleasures. Right, yeah. So it kind of goes back to my breakfast point. So I don't deprive myself of the meal. If I'm actually hungry afterwards, I'll just go ahead and eat. Yeah. Usually after they go to school or whatever, I just set a little dish out, like a hotel style with a little lid on it. And then I'll eat it. And it's kind of neat because it's not quite as good. Mm -hmm. It's not as fresh. (laughs) So it makes the meal a little less pleasurable. I would compare it more to a little game I play for fun. I'm not the thing you should do, you know. Okay, I disabled that. <laughs> Go ahead. Because you get a lot of feedback from people, negative feedback, when you're saying, oh, you're denying yourself. Um, you're not, you need to eat the food. You need to you know, enjoy your life. And you're just you're harming yourself. But I don't know. I, I really, I'm very fond of this idea and this technique. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it just makes you stronger. It, it, it does. It allows you to do what you want to do. Mm-hmm. You know? If you want to enjoy that meal at that time, fine. But, but maybe there's some reason that you don't want to do that. I, I, you know, people spend a lot of their day thinking about food, preparing food. It disrupts their schedule. Um, I probably uh, eat 
one meal a day on you know five five days out of the week. It's it's not a fixed pattern, but I would say, you know, those are the days I do what you'd consider true intermittent fasting, where I'll, I'll just have dinner on those five days. Uh, what do I do at at lunch at work? I'll you know talk to somebody or I'll go for a walk, which is a, a great way to re, to to regain energy. Just go out for a nice walk during the lunch hour. You come back, you actually have more energy than if you would had lunch. Mm-hmm. So a yeah. lot of what you're talking about reminds me of a book. Um, that I would recommend you or anyone read. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called The Flinch by Julian Smith. Oh. It's free on yeah. Amazon. Kindle edition is free still. Um, yeah. And it's, and, and, yeah I, I, it's a book that's been on my list. In fact, you know, Julian did a, an interview with me. I don't know if you had a chance to see that. Oh, no. I had no idea. Yeah. Uh, um, I've linked it on my blog. He, he, uh, it was a three-part uh uh, actually print interview. Oh, that's super so, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I know Julian. Oh, excellent. Yeah. I think the, that book's awesome. I mean, I'm a, I'm the ultimate coward. So everything in there just made me flinch. I wasn't, I never did a damn thing, but it's an intriguing read. <laughs> yeah. And I remember on his, in his blog, he had things about sort of, uh, what you might, might almost call consider, you know, social hormesis. In other words, exposing yourself to uncomfortable social situations. Yeah, that's what this podcast is. Um, yeah. Trust me, I am not a talk. I mean, I uh, I fear talking on a phone to someone more than just about anything ever since I was a child. And I took on this project mm-hmm. kind of as a challenge to myself. And, um, and has it gotten better? No, uh, oh. it has not. Um, <laughs> there's just so many outside factors that affect it. I, I just don't have an even-keeled life, you know. I, I'm just up and down. So there's too many external pressures, I'd say, for me to gauge what effect this podcast does. But it often causes me serious depression, um, even sometimes like a, a whole day afterwards. Um, I'll often feel that I had a, it was a complete failure, worst episode ever. I, oh, my God, all the mistakes I made. And then I get great feedback from people. So <laughs> the payoff often comes much later, you know. Well, I think you have – I mean, I haven't had – chance to really familiarize myself with your blog because we just met each other yeah right right but just look looking at your guests uh it's very interesting eclectic yeah i mean i get big names so i might must not be so horrible sure (laughs) (laughs) and it's not like i'm pulling in people because of um my massive audience or anything like that so well Mm -hmm. let's go to this uh Stoicism. You were saying these are not dour. I thought these were people who just refused the pleasures of the world and just live like isolated, like monks on a hill. But after reading a guide to the good life and uh, well, part of it and your blog, it, it's it's not that at all. No, it's really the opposite. Uh, uh, I think it was it, um, and I think Irvine does a really good job in that book of. Um, Describing not only the history of, of you know both the Greek and the Roman Stoics, but also trying to extract out of it you know some techniques or approaches that really work well even in, in the modern world, and so it's 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 quite um, quite striking. In some ways, it, it there's uh, parallels of cognitive uh, you know behavioral therapies, you know, but I think it's it's different than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it comes back to this idea that um, 
you know, we don't want to be slaves of not just emotions, but just circumstances. You know, if we're going to live a good life, we need to um, have, there's got to be something valuable at the end of our life. We have to be able to chart a course and not be by, by circumstances. And um, I think, you know, Epictetus and, and some of the other Stoic philosophers drew this distinction between uh, internals and externals, right? So the uh, externals are the weather, you know, what happens when you get in traffic, your boss yells at you, your old girlfriend breaks up with you, you know, you get audited for taxes. These are things you don't really have control over. And, and a lot of people choose to get upset about these kinds of things. And the internals are what you do have control over. You know, your, your values, your choices, um, your, your decisions. Um, and you can go ahead with those. But the question is then how do you, how do you um, separate yourself from all these external factors that are tugging on you and pulling you away from what you really want to do? Yeah, you, you know, you hear this a lot in the self-help guru world you know it's it's not what the world does to you it's your response to it um and they'll kind of twist it around to where you know you can create a new future for yourself just by thinking more positively so they'll kind of send it into a tailspin but in stoicism it's actually completely practical yeah so i mean then there's there's obviously some some truth to it it's your response to it right but those books don't really tell you how to change your response they just say You've got to change it, and you've got to do it just by thinking positively. But I'm not sure that that works or how well that works. And I, I think it, think does, the, it does not at all for me. So yeah, it doesn't work. And 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 so just like uh, by analogy to how you get stronger physically by exercising or deliberately exposing yourself to stress and, and sort of using stress as inoculating yourself with stress, you do the same thing spiritually and emotionally so they had this technique of negative visualization which sounds a bit odd when you first hear about it you know at the end of the day instead of you know praying that good things happen you 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 imagine all the worst things that could happen you know you're losing your loved ones um you know financial catastrophe your business goes under your projects fail and you kind of think about these things and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, that didn't happen. And it's almost like an opponent process. Yeah. You feel, you feel better about it. Actually, I do have things I, I can appreciate here, you know. And, and so, um, but, th- but then, and, and I think that's useful. And, and I've, I've, I tried that and, and you know, it, I think it works. To me, one of the techniques I like the most has to do with, you know, the idea of, of self-denial. And this fits in with uh, intermittent fasting. It can even fit in with just taking a day away from your routine and doing simple things, you know, going for a walk or a hike, get, getting away from things, um, voluntary simplicity, um, getting rid of stuff, you know, uh, um, giving away things, mm-hmm. de- you know, finding ways to deprive yourself and, and then let, let, let your body and your soul respond to that. And then you realize that you, you can get by on less, that you don't need all of these things that, um, you don't need to be eating all of the time, um, and and you experience a certain amount of freedom there. Um, I, I think uh, not just Julian, but I believe also um, uh, like Tim Ferriss mm-hmm. has talked about the idea of uh, 
you know, not being afraid to quit your job, not being afraid to give up things. Um, you know, don't, don't live in fear. Mm-hmm. So I think um, I think the Stoics really had this idea. Yeah, you know, both are, amazing, yeah. and it reminds me a lot of uh, some of the stories and things. Um, 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 well, his name just slipped my mind. Uh, the mythology uh, man. He was like the greatest, the greatest storyteller of all the ancient myths and what they mean today. Joseph Campbell. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. He covered this in detail that the safe path, you know, is 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 the least rewarding and the worst path. It, it's only it's only the path with the greatest risk that is actually worth pursuing. Right. It's interesting to me that that two of the greatest Stoics, you know, one was Epictetus, who was a slave, and the other was Marcus Aurelius, who was actually an emperor of Rome. I mean, you can't imagine people from two less similar walks of life, and yet they came to the same philosophy. And in in both their lives, they were trying to find a way to um, uh, separate themselves from just the the turn of events and and their situation. Mm -hmm. And, And find a way to experience greater freedom and autonomy. Yeah, I never read Marcus Aurelius. Uh, I've been told to by a dozen people, but I have. I ended up looking into Seneca. Yes, yeah, Seneca. Boy, he's fantastic to read. Just, yeah. Just fantastic. I mean, I'd never even heard of him until I was 39 years old. It's such a shame. Right. Well, I and mean, he was a statesman, too, a senator, and, uh, and a fairly wealthy man, and, and had, you know, he experienced... The normal pleasures in his life, but he wasn't afraid to uh, to um, give those up. Um, he had, I think, a lot of interesting writings about what friendship means, and um, yeah. So a lot, you, you read you read these guys, and they're very modern in, um, in in the significance of what they're saying. Yeah, and a lot of it is exactly tied into what's going on in the paleo primal movement about. Shedding off all modernity and rediscovering mm-hmm. your roots, you know, going barefoot and all this. And some, you know, people point as being silly, but hell, it's reconnecting to something. I think it's fantastic. I think for me, it's unfortunately, it's the, that I think it's unfortunate that people poo-poo it so much. They make fun of people for wearing barefoot shoes or you know whatever. Have you have you done barefoot running or, or no? I, I don't run. I, I I have walked around the block a few times barefoot. Yeah. It's 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 very pleasurable. I mean, your 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 the soles of your feet just pick up all this extra sensation. If you especially if you go like walking on trails, you just um, it's a lot more playful. Yeah, my um, I've got my kids wired in pretty good. They're they're mm-hmm. pretty much just flip flops and barefoot now that the snow has melted and it's the snow melted now. It's eighty degrees because I'm in <laughs> Cleveland, Ohio. So. Oh, okay. You're finally coming out of that. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah my kids are. I, I should interview them someday about <laughs> how they feel, how the how the earth feels to them. I'm a. I, I read. I sit on the couch. <laughs> <laughs> so here's well, I do too. But I but I I love just you know getting out and, and being physical. Um, uh, you know, some of the things I spend a lot of time doing are you know rock climbing, bicycling. Just getting outside and doing things. Rock climbing, particularly, is—I um, think it's a great example of, of, of physical hormesis. It's was, very, stim- yeah, very stimulating physically. Um, I think spiritually, socially, it's something you do with. A- you know, you mentioned rock climbing, 
Yeah. And um, I rock climbed a few times very poorly, but it was easily the greatest natural high I've ever felt in my life. And I wouldn't shut up about it for months afterwards. <laughs> I mean, seriously, just to put your backside, your butt, we were, well, we started by rappelling. Mm-hmm. To take that leap to set your butt over the edge of the cliff yeah. is the most intense feeling I've ever experienced. And then to accomplish it, and then we did some climbing. I mean, it, it is. I, I I can know why people get like really really into it. it it's it's amazing. Yeah, and, and what's cool about it is it's it's really an infinite set of challenges at every level. You you keep fa- facing another level. You just peel back another layer of the onion, and and you face uh, you know a new challenge. Your heart is racing. You feel a certain amount of fear, but you learn to do that in a controlled way. And every time you um, are able to meet that challenge, you just feel this exhilaration. There's nothing like it. Plus, you're outside. You're in a beautiful setting. Um, there's nothing like it. Yeah, and you don't have to worry about like novelty-seeking. You don't need a bigger mountain. I mean, there's enough challenge right in front of you. You yeah. don't have to worry about that until you became incredibly elite. There's enough challenge built in on just a small boulder. You know, People do bouldering. You know exactly, there, and there's physical challenge. There's also mental challenge because you're you're trying to plan out a route, almost like a chess game, and you're sure. you're, thinking, you're thinking about it. So it, you know, I like activities that engage, you know, every, all parts of you, and, and 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 do so in a in a real way. You know, as opposed to going to the gym and doing some type of standard repetitive exercise, which is boring. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I think if you can build this element of fun and joy into it, then it's great. So, you know, all of these things which might seem like they're stressful or they're um, um, uncomfortable, if you if you approach them the right way, they're they're actually invigorating. Absolutely, this is back to the 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 heart of hormesis, right? Right. That's fantastic. I do have a. a change the subject a question what the hell happened to stoicism where did it go for so (laughs) long it's uh it's gone away you know and then it 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 reemerges um throughout history at different periods of time if if you go back to uh sort of the um the enlightenment um uh you know and and then in the early uh you know the founding of the american republic a lot of the the you know the statesman at that time f- found um, the Stoics to be uh, really good reads, hmm. um, and it's come by. It's it's been you know I think people who um, are are in the in the military often look at the Stoics as uh, giving them some counsel on how to overcome certain challenges. But it's surpri- it's surprising to me that it hasn't really entered popular culture more. And maybe that is because people don't want to hear, hear about doing uncomfortable, tough things. And they, they yep. get this impression that it's just going to be no fun. So maybe stoicism is suffering from bad PR or bad marketing. Yeah, and, and our own uh, convenience addiction. It's not necessarily convenient to think or, or to philosophize or, or, or make, you know, like this. Yeah. Right. Yeah, but, but, but I, th- I think what what 
somehow if you could if you could get across the fact that this is like a hill you've got to climb and then there's something on the other side that's great um, and and you know once you start to get there and get that then it's um it's very much self-reinforcing yeah much like everything else it's about the story it needs a better story so yes. you got to read yeah. a guide to the good life to get the story and then we'll see how many people we can bring on board <laughs> <laughs> you know one thing i was thinking about is that there was just like a fracturing back then um between educator you know and pupil and then everyone invented their own you know philosophy Mm-hmm. It seemed like every student of everyone back then came up with their own thing. And I was just wondering if maybe it was just a notoriety issue that they didn't want to follow, but they wanted to create and recreate and recreate. There could be some of that. You know, what's, what's interesting is you find, if you look at Judaism and Christianity, you find some, of, some similar ideas. You know, there were ascetic strains and, of, uh, and, um, and there was fasting right in the early Christian church and all, sure. but really the Stoics came before that. You know, I, I, I think uh, Christian religion in some ways ad- adopted and, and added the theology to it, but adopted a lot of the thinking that came from this pre-Christian yeah. you know, then they just Then they just hijacked the happiness part and put it onto God. <laughs> there you go. You couldn't actually be happy yourself. That's a reward that comes when you're dead or some glory yeah. bestowed upon you. It, what's interesting is, um, you know, the, one of the questions is, you know, were the Stoics religious or did they believe in God? And I, I think that uh, uh, that Irvine goes into this. I, some of them were, and some of them weren't. So it's a it's a philosophy that's maybe compatible with, um, you know, belief in God, but it's also compatible with with atheism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it, it works either way. Yeah, I think it'd be a great read for uh, anarchists. Mm-hmm. Well, this is super fun, Todd. <laughs> Thanks a lot, man. Oh, yeah, this is great. Yeah, this is fantastic. I, I really would highly recommend anyone just checking out your blog. There's so much to read there. Gettingstronger.org is fantastic. But let's do a couple minutes, if you have time. Sure. On eyesight, specifically. Okay. Um. I'll just use myself as an example. I went to one of these uh, fake doctors, you know, at Costco. Did she get my eyes checked? Mm-hmm. And um, he's, my eyes are getting really, really bad. Um, and he told me that my focal length is too short of my eyeball and that I'm now, my eyes are basically too weak to make the adjustment and that I can't get LASIK or there's no fix for it. So I just need stronger and stronger glasses as time goes on. And after reading your blog post, I find maybe that's not true. You know, I can tell you this. I was uh, my myopia was getting worse and worse. I was needing stronger and stronger lenses, and it was only just by. I think this was one of the other uh, concepts that led into the um, seeing the connections between different forms of stress and how they can um, strengthen us. You know, I I was on vacation without my glasses for several weeks and very frustrated because I had planned on doing a lot of reading. Um. But I noticed that just going for bicycle rides and going for long walks, that my eyes started to improve. And then I actually just started experimenting and trying to see how far I could see uh, without the glasses, you know, focusing on very sharp uh, edges and uh, telephone wires and that sort of thing. And um, 
by the end of the vacation, I, you know, I could see quite a bit better. And I just decided um, to try to figure out if I could make it without the glasses. So I did a little bit of research and I came across this uh, guy who was a pilot, Brian Severson, who'd written a little bit about plus lens therapy, basically doing the opposite of what your, your OD would typically prescribe instead of um, trying to uh, serve as a crutch and uh, allow you, you to see perfectly. He prescribed using the opposite type of lens, of, of, you know, a, a plus lens to make it actually somewhat more difficult for your eyes to see. But the key is, is not just um, adding this additional stress, it's figuring out how to use that as a tool to improve vision. And the key, and this is the part that a lot of people miss and a lot of the studies with plus lenses completely overlook, the key is to find a distance at which the, the print that you're reading or the objects that you're looking at are just at the edge of focus. Oh. So, so um, and for people who have mild myopia, you can do this without plus lenses. You just sit back from the computer or the book, and you'll find that there's a point at which you can see everything in perfect, sharp focus. And then if you sit a couple inches further away, it starts to blur. Yep. So what you want to do is you want to read right at that edge, um, where it's just incipient blurriness. And then periodically, you just back away a little bit more. And uh, if you keep that up for you know, uh, stretches of 15 to 30 minutes and do it for a couple times a day, you find you can increase the distance. Um, and then eventually uh, um, you use the plus lenses to, to bring the, the distance closer again and you start the process over. And eventually that distance now without glasses can be more than several feet. And once it's at, you know, 20 feet or more, um, you really don't need glasses. So it's a gradual process. And mm-hmm. on, on, the, on the blog, I would say um, there, you know, there's a, a forum that's attached to the blog. Probably the, the longest um, discussion is on the topic of, of vision improvement. And there's, oh, I would say a couple of dozen people who've made significant um, improvements in their eyesight mm-hmm. using the that's a super cool weightlifting for your eyes. It is weightlifting for your eyes. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, because yeah, in my own story, I you know, I had reading glasses. I had a proper prescription and I lost them and I didn't need them. Not soon afterwards. And that was a few years ago. And now I need glasses again. Mm. So whatever I was doing in that interim, I must have accidentally strengthened my eyes and then now I've worn them out because I sit in front of a computer too much. Too much, right? Yeah. Well, so the key is then if you sit, you can still sit in front of the computer, but just back away a little bit. Just more. back up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'll sit so close. All right. I'm yeah. going to do this and I'll uh, give a full <laughs> report. <laughs> right. Hey, Todd, I'm going to let you go. Okay. Well, it was fun to talk, Brian. This was fantastic. Thank you. All right. Stay in touch. All right. Okay. Yeah, Bye. Take care. Good night now. Good night. Yeah.